0: is the idea of property universal? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Bart Wilson. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Bart Wilson. Bart is the Donald P. Kennedy Endowed Chair in Economics and Law at Chapman University. He is a member of the Economic Science Institute and member and director of the Smith Institute for Political Economy and Philosophy. His research uses experimental economics to explore the foundations of exchange and specialization and the origins of property. Another of his research programs compares decision-making in humans, apes, and monkeys. Bart has published papers in the American Economic Review, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, Proceedings of the Royal Society of Biological Sciences, and Nature human behavior. He's also the author of the book, The Property Species, which just came out in August of 2020 and which will be the foundation of most of our discussion today. Bart, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on. So, Bart, we base each episode on a question and go wherever the conversation and answers take us. Our question today is, is the idea of property universal? And I think for most of our discussion, to make sense, we'll get to what you claim is the answer to this question a little earlier than we think. But before we actually get to your, your universal claim, uh, I'd like to share with our listeners some thoughts you lay out toward the beginning of the book. You note that if we want to better understand how property works, what property rights are, and how the world works with these concepts, we have to understand what property is. And now that I think about it, and when I read that in your book, I thought that was really interesting because it's so true, right? That many of us skip right to speaking of property as it pertains to rights and what we can do with property, but but we don't talk about what we're claiming to have rights over. So I guess that, that was very interesting to you, hence the, hence the the book, right? I mean like this is something that's so important and I don't think I think we just pass right over it every day.
1: And we tend to think about property as a thing. And mm-hmm. it really hasn't always been that it hasn't always been thought of as a thing property was an, a characteristic of a thing. And, and so if we have to be very clear what we mean by property and so not take for granted that people are referring to it as a thing. And as I go through in, in the book, I lay out the thesis that I want to think about property as a custom.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so, and what do we mean by that? Um, Cause people at different times and writing said, thought about different things. So, Uh, We talk about property rights very frequently. It's a very commonly used word, Um, but it's a new word relatively Uh, entered the uh, use general usage in the mid 19th century. Before that, people just talked about property. And so what's the difference? Is there a difference? Is it just property just became property rights or is there something new? And I would argue there's something new about property rights. It's a macro level idea, whereas property tend to be much more of a local idea um, before that.
0: And in that vein, you also bring up the idea at the beginning of your book that we take for, not only do we take the concept of property for granted and what it is, but, uh, we also take for granted what's happening in, in even a simple conversation, right? I really like this illustration. You said like, you know, we every day we ask things like, whose is this? And some people respond, mine. And, and it's, that seems simple enough. But uh, before we get into some specific examples and into some of the meat of what's in your book, can can you tell us just from that level, like what more is going on under the hood there? Like we're not just having, like you said in your book, like a simple conversation. Oh yeah, that's mine. That We understand that. There's, there's something really interesting and, and nuance going on there,
1: right? So the idea is that there's something in our minds about how we classify the world that's going on with property. And I think that's what I want to add to the conversation about what property is and how property rights work, that we have to think about the mind and what's going on there. And it's something we have to teach our kids, how the rules about how it works. And so it's uh, what we need to do is think about how our minds perceive the world of things when we call something mine. And how is that? does that work? Because children do it really quickly and we don't have to teach our children what mine means. They pick that up all on their own. And then we tell them the circumstances when they can do that. Most of the time, it's when they cannot do that. <laughs> and we tell them, no, right. that is not yours. And so we that got me thinking about how is it that we perceive the world of things and how is that important to. What we think about as property
0: rights. Just, just to get a little nerdier here, which I think is, is going to be great. Uh, you sort of introduced this concept, and I think it'll be crucial if you'll understand this as we talk about everything else of, of like of things going on in the human brain, schedules and patterns. And again, without us just sitting here and reading sixty pages of the book at a high level, can you can you give our listeners a summary of what we mean by schedules and patterns and how that affects what's going on in the brain?
1: Well, I think if you we tend to think about property as first personal, second personal from my own our own experience. And when I the tact I wanted to take was let's stand outside a little bit and think of ourselves as biologists looking at this group of the species here that mm-hmm. interacting with them with each other and with things. And you'll notice that there are patterns. If you're if you're a biologist or primatologist, you're studying, you're looking for patterns in what the, the animals do. And I want to look for the, what are the patterns about how humans think about property. And there are some very regular. There's some regularities that go with this, with this, with this idea. And so, every animal, in a way, has kind of a schedule of how they're going to react to situations. And, and so, their, their their minds are going to process what their body is touching, what their eyes are seeing, what their ears are hearing, and then it's going to classify and it's going to give them an instruction to act or to not act. And so. I'm looking for what are these common patterns that we might see with people regarding things in this notion of what we might call property. And I'm going to take for granted that there are some commonalities and they want to see just how far that extends.
0: And again, as we as we jump into the book here, your your first section basically jumps right in. I, I really like that you did that at the beginning of the book. I think it was I think it was pretty much the first line in chapter one where you say, Look, like I'm gonna lay my cards out on the table, right? You say property, and this is quoting, you now. property is a universal and uniquely human custom. Uh, and then we're, of course, we're going to explore that as our conversation goes on deeper. But l- let's just stop here for a second and also explore the weight of your claim. For those unfamiliar with the fields that you're in and the fields that your claim might affect, can, can you take a deeper dive in, into telling us why is this such an interesting point? Like, why are you why are you rocking a, a a boat here? Like, why are you sort of knocking on some doors that people might not want to answer? Why is that such a simple sentence actually deserve a book? And why is it such an interesting thing that you're bringing up?
1: So when I talk, I work with climatologists. Uh, I'm working with them for um couple, almost ten years now, maybe more ten years. And I would talk to them about well, what I'm working on with with my laboratory experiments on property. They would say, "Oh yeah." You know, dolphins do that too, or baboons, they have, they respect the harems of females. And scrub jays, they, they, uh, they, re, they recash their food if, they, if another scrub jay is watching them as they cache it. So they're protecting themselves against theft. And so they'll say, yeah, property's all over the animal kingdom. And then I'm also working with my colleague in the English department on different projects. In humanities, property is this very narrow thing. It's something Western European. It's very modern. And, and so in one part of the academy, property is this uh, broadly broadly natural phenomenon. And another part of the academy it's very local. For only some human beings have it. And so as a social scientist, I'm going to go thread that middle, <laughs> and I'm going to make nobody happy. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what that first claim is going to recognize. That basically, nobody is going to be happy with this middle ground that I'm that I'm that I'm laying out. And so, every one of those words mattered. I thought, well, I might as well be right up front and say, "All right, here's where I'm going," <laughs> and I'm going to I'm going to try to lead you to the same conclusion as as you go as you go through the book. So, um, I'm going to define it first: uh, universal in the sense of. Uh, I think the biologists are onto something that is widely in the animal kingdom, and if it's something of a particular species, that it's gonna be universal to this species we call homo sapiens. But, and so that's not gonna make some people in humanities very happy. They're gonna be disappointed by that. But it's also, I would argue, uniquely human, in which case the biologists are gonna be very unhappy, that they're gonna to wanna to say, no, no, there's gotta be some similarity of what you're talking about with uh, other other animals. And so uh, that's, that's why I lay that out like that, so that everyone knows that I'm going to try to thread the needle here and, and bring you along to, uh, to this conclusion. And then the last word is probably the most important one. I think most of uh, my audience be, will be social scientists, less of biologists, and maybe less in the humanities. Um, and that's the word custom. Uh, and that's not a word I think most people would first jump to to describe what property works. It's not how sure. my students talk about it and so that one is also going to kind of raise some uh eyebrows um and, and so i think for ordinary people they're going to think no no property is coming to something from the government uh and so the government gives us property uh, rights over things and i'm going to push back that it also comes from with us with within the person it comes within the communities that we live and so it has to go the other direction too And, you know, lawyers and philosophers all talk about property through this notion of of rights. And that's a really high-level concept. It's a big concept. Mm -hmm. It's operating at a big level of human cooperation. And I want to bring things down to the individual ordinary people, how they think and feel and what they know about property. And so that's kind of, I'm pushing against the grain of kind of major social science in that sense, which tends to look for differences. There must be differences in culture about what people think and do, differences by gender, what people think and do, by age, think and do. And I mean, this is my research is filled with this as well. Uh, But this project, I want to see, well, what is it that's common? What's common to our species? And What I discover along the way is that there's something common to our humanity as well. And it's not just kind of a biological thing that we've put something more onto this that's important. To how we think of ourselves, as as human
0: beings, and as you said, like after we strip away all the discussions about like you know legal institutions and then law and rights and all the stuff we attach on a property and strip property down to the notion of property, that that's I found that very interesting right off the bat. You established that, and you're right. The sentence of you saying property is a universal and uniquely human custom is loaded. So I'm going to actually go backwards, actually through that and, and drill down a little deeper as we're getting into this. So, um, th- on the word custom or customary. So one one the cool thing you did sort of what, how how you're approaching this so you, you, and you do throughout the book try to make it relatable which I which I thought was great but uh, on the customary aspect you said one thing you can simply note as a human in, in most of our experiences that it, except for in some exceptional circumstances uh, it's really customary for people not to steal things for each other right like I think we often think of having laws you mentioned in the book as well if if there was no law for this like there'd just be chaos everybody would be stealing things from each other. But you rightly point out that, like, when you really think about the law is there to really, you know, enforce and, uh, and and deal with people that are doing this on the margin kind of thing. Right. There's it's it's 100 percent enforcement and punishment is just not possible. And, and people know that. So if if. It was only the law stopping people. We just see like bikes stolen every day, right? So it's like kind of interesting to think of. It's a custom for us to understand that there are things that don't belong to us and things that do.
1: Yes. So certainly if you go to different parts of the world, things are going to be more secure. (laughs) Possession is going to be more stable in different places, which I think only adds the fact that it's customary
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that
1: they do things differently because of that. But we can't all be externally kind of imposed upon to not take things from other people. That can't be the whole thing that drives us. Or, or the government would be running out of resources to kind of keep us all all in line. Right. Somehow it has to come from within as well. That somehow... I do not want to be the kind of person that goes around taking stuff from other people. And then the community I'm in is kind is one where we don't go around taking certain things from other people. And so the direction has to go both ways that the reason why the government will enforce it is because deep down, there's a lot of us who don't want to take things and we want to, we want to basically keep that marginal person who might want to take something in line. That's where it's aimed at, not for what I do, Uh, as much as for that extra marginal person
0: right as you were saying we're sort of really at that level where it's almost like this thing that we can all empathize or sympathize with the sentiment that anyone listening could even sit there and say, well, if I feel like I don't want someone to steal my stuff, it's sort of, you're flipping that around and saying, I'm pretty sure other people feel like that. I wouldn't want that done onto me. So maybe I shouldn't be doing that onto other people. Like I find it interesting you brought right down to that like bare human level, right? That's where we start our journey in the book.
1: And that came to me from the early experiments that I did improperly in the laboratory, kind of setting up a virtual world where people could discover to take stuff. And they quickly jumped to their conversations of, I will leave you the possession of your stuff if you leave me the possession of mine. <laughs> and so it's very instinctual, natural to think about this reciprocally. And that is kind of a core message I want to bring out of the paper, out of the book, that a key message of the book is that property is reciprocal. Right. And it doesn't exist just for me, <laughs> mm-hmm. it exists for everyone. And we're all better for it when we have
0: it. right and it's also not a concept that someone that we all feel like you know some state or some person invented and forced it down like he, again and we'll get to this later because that's section 2 of your book in terms of how people actually go about establishing the rights and how the law works but on the on the basic level it's not something that as you were saying we have to be forced upon and told by someone from the top forcing it down like you know it's it's we all kind of understand this basic notion and and um and that's sort of the customary aspect we were talking a bit about there um moving on to that, hanging on to that word universal a bit in, in your claim at the front. And you, you went into this before, but I like to drill down a little further. So and, and you even say in the book, in order to make the universal part of your claim work, we have to understand what specific tenants we see across all humans. And I think this is a very interesting place to stop because, again, a lot of people who are still not used to talking about this as like an, a notion, they're used to talk, thinking about this in terms of rights and legislation stuff, to be clear, and of course, correct me if you're, I'm wrong, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I got out of your book is definitely that you're not saying, oh, in every country we stop at, we're going to see this kind of rule on the books. It's more about this idea that there's certain notions across everybody like in a serious way, like in universally. That's how you can actually confidently use that word universally.
1: It's a universal idea. It's an universal abstract thought that in every language, someone can say, This thing is mine. Mm -hmm. So Cliff Goddard and Anna Virzbyska are two Australian linguists, and they've studied many diverse languages, and they broke it down in these very simple kind of concepts. This thing and mine are as atomically reflexive as you can get of concepts. You can't think of them any other way. And they found that every language you could put those words together, like those concepts together to make that point and so that's the sense in which it's universal that there are we have this abstract way that we all can think about it and so if i could go to some somebody that doesn't really know me at all very different from me and could communicate this thing is mine i would know what they would know what i'm saying and i would know what they're saying if they mm-hmm. were to say that kind of thing and so that's so that's the sense that it's universal and we and we want to think about it in an abstract level and again, I think when we talk about property, we're quick to want to think about it as a thing, yeah. in which case people are saying, like, no, 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 I don't have property in this thing. This group of people doesn't have property in that thing. <laughs> like, no, no, it's not about the things, it's about the concepts in our minds that are working. And that's the part that's universal. And so there's an abstract form about how property works that you can be put in place anywhere. Now, what will be unique to communities is what is the set of things by which somebody can say this thing is mine. And that can be really expansive as it is kind of in Western European history, or that can be really small. If you think about um, kind of going back in history and things like that, that could be a real small set of things. But what anthropologists have, have found is that in every human group, Basically, tools, utensils, and ornaments. There's some set of those things
2: mm-hmm.
1: about which somebody can say, "This is mine," and so it could be really small, um, or it could be very expansive notion. I think that's where the kind of the tensions arise in humanities: this very large scope apl- application of this abstract idea versus the really small group way of thinking about this idea
0: if anyone's listening right now and going hey wait a minute again i think a lot of the times in these discussions we're having a terminology problem because uh and i had to sort of adjust my own thinking i was reading your book i feel like i'm there now but kind of thing but again it was still very you're challenging some preconceived notions in the way we use the words and i thought that was great again a great feature of the book so yeah again i just want to reinforce and have you elaborate on it of course that you are indeed saying that there are, of course, unique conceptions of the way properties applied in certain cultures, and that we see varying across humans. So, for instance, um, a lot of people, even social scientists, you know, there's the sort of this um, tenet out there that people often throw out, well, like, oh, you, did you know such and such a culture didn't have property in their history, kind of thing. They are clearly using the term in a different way that you are using it in this conversation, right?
1: Yes, they're talking about certain things, and most of the time that would be. I mean, also the modern use of the word property. It's got these heavily loaded with land.
0: Right. Right. Or at
1: least it's no the modern notion of property in Western European kind of communities. Right. I get off
0: my property, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. You know, do not trespass. Beware of dog.
0: Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Those kind of things. And, and I I want that's very modern. And you know, when I push things back, I just You know, in the language the use, property really wasn't applied to land until after the 1500s, probably, Uh, probably not in the 1600s or 1700s very much. And so if we're going to keep looking at the roots of this, going back, it's not going to be property is not really about land when it kind of when we're in small groups and tribes. There's got to be something else. At the at the source of it,
0: and um, so we covered off again at a at a bit of a high level here as as our first half uh, continues. We talked about the uh, the the universal part, the customary part. Of course, there's a there's the unique word in your statement that we said the property is a universal and uniquely human custom. So again, there's lots of great stuff in the book, but at a high level, are there any key things you'd like to highlight in the way of how we distinguish the way uh, another animal that's not us might demonstrate possessiveness over something? between uh, how humans do that, right? Because as you sort of teased this at the beginning where you said that like uh, there's other disciplines and a bunch of common knowledge out there that will tell many people that Well, like, no, like check out that monkey or something, right? Like he's clearly very possessive over this. So so what is different? How do we fuel that word uniquely in your sentence? What's so unique about the way humans do this than other animals that we can observe?
1: So a lot of the focus when you talk about it properly that way is looking at in its effects. So... Um that a dog doesn't want to give up its toy. Um, um, right, right. Yeah. A, a, and and it, that's the that's and I'm arguing that's the effect of how how property might work. Or if it, a kid doesn't want to give up, <laughs> grabs a toy, no, that's mine. They don't want to give that up. That um but uh so it's the effects that we tend to equate across the species. Um wolves protect territory humans do the same kind of thing is that the effect and i'm arguing there is a big difference between how animal other animals transmit from generation to generation how they deal with things so most animals things are going to get transmitted a lot of it genetically but some of it socially and so i pretty sure wolves don't have to go out there and teach their young how to smell the urine and to urinate to mark their territory that's just something they do and they recognize they will recognize the scent of another of another wolf pack and respond to it they don't have to be taught that from a generation and and so food mates and in, in territory i would argue are very much genetically passed down from generation to generation now, there are many things about acquiring food mates that might be uh, socially passed down in different animals. Hmm. So um, a brown-headed cowbird will attract a mate, and it's a brood parasite, so, it, so it's brought up with members not of its species, so it, so it can't be genetic. So it must be something socially passed along that they learn these, call, these mating songs to attract mates. So it's something social. Dolphins, cows will teach their calves how to forage for food in a particular way. Um, There are orangutans that use tools to process their food and some orangutans have the same environmental situations but they don't use the tools. In other situations, other other, uh, groups of orangutans do use the tools. So there's something clearly socially transmitted there. But when it comes to humans, there's a fundamental difference when I think about what property means. So for us, we are taught how not to acquire things. All the other animals are taught how to acquire them if it is socially transmitted. And I think that not is the key difference with humans, is no, we teach our kids, no, you cannot grab that. And that's a great disappointment. Um, So it's, I think probably very genetically transmitted that grabbing something and discovering it and claiming, putting it in our hands, we call it mine. That doesn't have to be taught to kids. That doesn't have to be taught to any other animal. Right. But what we, they do have to be told is when they cannot grab that thing and call this mine. And that's the key feature. And, and so if you want to make this claim that, that humans are like all other animals in this, you have to somehow get to this claim where things are genetically transmitted in other animals to somehow socially transmitted about how not to get something in humans. Because we have to teach every generation of kids the rules of when they can say this thing is mine.
2: Right, exactly. Uh,
1: they're not born with it. They they have they have they have to learn those those rules. And if you put it that way, it's a lot of hand waving just to say, oh, baboons are like are like humans. Uh, Because we got to get something from something genetic to something social and socially about an abstract idea of not. Not can be applied very, uh, it's abstract because it can be not good and also be not true. Those are very different uses of the word not.
2: Great, for sure.
1: Uh, And and so that abstract idea is common to all human groups. All human groups can negate that way. And so that's the crux of the argument is how do we get there from genetically transmitted uh, about acquiring food mates and territory to socially transmitted. And I'm arguing it didn't happen that way. <laughs> it's happened some other way. What is, what is something that's different? And it's all in the perceptions of how we view the world unlike any other animal we take the abstract we take the physical world and we give it abstract concepts and we put at these abstract concepts around the thing in a way that no other animal can and one and those abstract concepts include not and mine
0: and i actually think that is an excellent place to take a break so we're going to do that right now everyone you're listening to the curious task i'm speaking with bart wilson today curious task is a podcast from the institute for liberal studies feel free to send us questions and feedback to curious task at liberal studies.ca a special thanks to our supporters on patreon including sabine Elchidiak, travis smith and vincent Geloso. as always remember to like us on facebook follow us on twitter at the curious task and rate us on apple podcasts or wherever else you're listening to the curious task Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Bart Wilson today. Bart, I think the first half of our conversation was really great. It was very illuminating. And uh, I, even I, 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 as I said, I read through the book, but even hearing you say it again, I like how it's enforcing everything I read. So if someone's listening to this stuff for the first time too, I'm sure their head's kind of exploding a little bit, which is which is a good thing. And again, I, as I said in the first half, I definitely encourage everyone to go, go check the book out, um, the one I mentioned in the intro. One thing we ended off the first half of our conversation on, uh, and I thought about it during the break a little bit there, is sort of the visual I had in my head where you said that in the unique sense, how we're all taught the the negative side of it, right? What's not are sort of uh, our, our property in, the, in that conceptual way. I sort of picture like, you know, when when someone enters the world almost, a Venn diagram without circles on it is the way we think of mine, right? And then as we go through our social customs in life, our, our circle starts to get a little smaller until we actually understand the concept of human property. I kind of thought of that in my head. It's like, no, that's the edge. That's not mine. So I thought that was very cool that, the way you put that right is that it's really the negative in in that sense how we learn about what, what's ours and what's not ours
1: so there uh there was i i don't know how i came across it by accident but there was this uh children's show called bing uh it's a british children's show and bing is a preschool bunny that's going around in the world with his caregiver flop and they're in the grocery store and it's a i mean If you think back to your childhood, we've all been that kid in the grocery store uh, with, with, with our parent or someone, and we see these great things all over the place. And so Bing finds this lollipop on this far wall while Flop is paying for the groceries. He opens it up, looks at it, takes a lick, and then when they're called to go, he just sticks it in his pocket. And when he gets outside, the caregiver says, what do you have there? And Bing says, it's a lollipop. I found it, it's mine. <laughs> and so no one has to be taught that. Like the kids who are watching this completely identify with little Bing that, oh yeah, there are things around when I grab them, I call them mine. But Flop has to ask Bing, like, well, did you pay for that? No, well, if you didn't pay for it, then it's called stealing. <laughs> and so, this episode is called "Not Yours." <laughs> Again, to reinforce this notion that kids have to learn when they can say things are mine and when they cannot say this thing is is mine. And, and it, it, I mean, it's a very quick lesson. It takes I think the whole episode seven minutes or something like that. But but they learn like oh. I have there are rules under which I can make this claim of this thing is mine. And things laying around grocery stores are not those things.
0: Right. Yeah. And actually, on that note, I think it's great. One of the things I want to follow up with that, and I think that's this provides an excellent segue into that. Um, that, as you said, like this children's show wasn't covering, you know, um, some form of jurisprudence or the way legislation works. Right. This was a, a very basic moral lesson. It's ultimately a lesson about justice. And, and one of your chapter titles in the book actually is, is what is right is not taken out of the rule, but let the rule arise out of what is right. And later you say, to, to back that up, our actions are governed by abstract rules, not concrete algorithms of benefit-cost analysis. And I think that ties interesting into the, the example you just brought up because that's so true, right? Is that, you know, the, the children weren't taught, you see kids, this isn't right because of, of, you know, law bill C-307. Like, you know, this is just a sort of a, a lesson about morality that when it's taught is probably well understood by those watching it. Um, so, so I've, I, again this idea that people need to wrap their heads around that our rules come from what is right when it comes to property not sort of the other way around i thought that was a very interesting exploration of the book too
1: yes that that um we tend to want to add the world up in a little bunch of particulars and then that will give us the whole of what property is um it's a bunch of laws written down add that all up that's what's called the code of property things like that what i want to do in this book is get you to think that property as a, because it's a custom, is embedded in a whole bunch of customs that we have mm-hmm. in, that govern our relationships with each other. And that when we have to make decisions about what is right regarding things, we're going to have to take it in consideration of all the other things that are going on in our community as well. And so that's why the rule comes out of, I have this particular problem. We have this particular dispute about who can say this is mine. And we're going to look at those concrete particulars and come up with what should have been the rule? What should these two people who have a dispute about this thing, what should their expectations, what should have been their expectations? And so we think about what is right in general, and then we're going to pull out the rule for this specific case that should have been recognized by everyone. And it could be good faith reasons why we don't have agreement on this, that there's a clash. And that's why we then have to have somebody spell out for us, a judge, to tell us, oh, here's what expectations should have been.
0: On that note, actually, uh, you you talk about in the book what happens when uh, experimenters do not force enforce property in a virtual world if they're conducting an experiment? So let me just ask you, uh, and indeed, according to the book, and experiments have been conducted and many of them by yourself. So uh, feel free to take it away here and, and take us through a couple of the experiments you've done. And you can, of course, tell us how they're set up, first of all, and what what, what your hypothesis was and, and what you found through various experiments in, in this vein of conversation here. So,
1: uh, so my colleagues, uh, Vernon Smith and Sean Crockett and I were interested in seeing how people would build a market from the ground up in the laboratory. And um, and so we gave a virtual field to them to grow things in, and a virtual house where they would consume them. And the more things they had in their house, they would get more money paid to us from the experiment. And we were surprised how hard it was for people to find trading partners to specialize and trade and, and get that whole that whole thing to work. They would discover exchange, but getting the specialization, that was much, that was much more difficult. Hmm. And our reviewers pushed back on us and said, well, you're not enforcing contracts. You know, they need for contract enforcement is the reason why. Again, just kind of thinking outside. This is what the the outside world is is not helping them out do these things on the ground. And when we went to the chat rooms, we noticed there's really no discussion of Well, I'm worried that they're not going to follow through on our exchange. And so we started going through our assumptions about what we were putting into the experiment. We realized we are assuming, however, that they can't take anything out of somebody else's field or out of somebody else's house. And we thought, well, what happens if we just made that little change? So the instructions are in the passive voice. Items that have been moved to your house will generate earnings in a particular way. And in the first experiments, they could only move things from their house into their field or their field into their house. But in this new experiment, they could discover that they can move things from any house (laughs) or any field into any house or under any field. And they quickly discover that. And soon things are flying across the screens. Like there is no stable possession in any session. They all start off this way. And we were shocked that we would see. You know, we live with in a world with civilized people, where the government enforces property, right? And they're taking stuff left and right. Now you could say it's for small stakes or whatever, but people in the experiment were very upset. Right? They were. They were very. They were not happy about what was going on. And for us, we saw this was an opportunity to explore, well, how is it that they come to come up with the rules of when you can move things where? And we found basically out of one out of six sessions, they were able to find uh, stable possession. And then they're able to trade based upon that and basically maximize the gains from trade and and their earnings. But most of the time it failed.
2: Hmm.
1: And we notice, well, here's this feature. It looks like there's this one bad apple who's just taking things from everyone. Let's give the people the ability to shun them. Like, all right, you're invisible to me. You can't take my stuff anymore. We make that costly. What happens? Groups all become um, isolationists. Then there's no trading. They're like, I'm, I'm isolating myself from everyone. And so they're even poor. right. Uh, and so like, okay. And that didn't seem to work. We, um, people have said, well, there, some people should have a comparative advantage in protecting other people from, from being plundered by others. So we said, okay, we'll find the people who produce the most and take the least and say, you have the power now to protect people from being taken from each other. What happens there? They become mafiosas. <laughs> and this—I remember this uh, this chat very clearly. And the people say, "Why are you taking our stuff?" Was, well, you didn't trade things in the beginning, <laughs> and now they got the power and they use it. Right. And so that didn't solve the problem. Um, and, and if anything, it made things worse. Um, and so we learned that communities to come up with their solutions to how to solve these disputes about things. Kind of come from the ground up. They emerge from from their interactions as a community, and we gave them a pretty tough task. These right. are, you know, these are people who can't see see each other face to face. They're only act, interacting through a computer. They're randomly thrown together. You know, they randomly show up to the lab. Here are eight of you. Go at it. So it's enforced, kind of impressed upon us. Excuse me, the experiment impressed on us how hard it is to get people to come up with these rules it's mm-hmm. just not something that we're born with groups communities have to really work this out and despite that kind of wild theft kind of comment we would get was well when you do see successes it's because they live in a world of property outside the laboratory so of course they're going to come to a conclusion okay well that's the great thing about experimental economics is you can always test those kind of things you can create a new experiment. And so that, um, I've been reading Bob Ellickson's book, uh, Order Without Law. He has a section on whaling norms. And it's a great case study because no one can dictate the rules of the sea. <laughs> there, and so the whalers are out there all on their own. And what you were there are different rules that they came up with in different parts of the world with different types of whales to settle disputes of who gets to claim that whale. So we created an experiment to test those rules. And again, right off the bat, people are taking, they're, they're going after the whales and in in our experiment, if two people tried to go after the same whale, then it would just degrade the entire resource. And so Mm -hmm. the, so the competition for it meant they were poor, this is less of it. And, and so it, was diff- it wasn't easy for them to come up with these rules how to, to establish property. And that's when we started seeing very different platforms, this idea that property has to come from the ground up. At some level, these people have to come up with the arrangements of when they can say, this is mine and that is yours. Mm-hmm. And that is the kind of big tension because people could have two different ideas about this uh so in the whaling there are two kind of rules there was called fast fish loose fish rule where if your harpoon was attached to the whale attached to your boat then it was yours but if it got away then anyone else could go after it so if it was if it was loose it was loose for someone else to uh and then there are other rules off uh so that was with right whales in the north atlantic whaling off the coast of north america with sperm whales Sperm whales have teeth, they dive, they're much they're more um, dangerous to, to whale. Uh, the American whalers came up with this idea of iron holds the whale. The harpoon is in there and there's a drogue attached, and I'm in pursuit of it, then it's mine. So you don't have to be attached to it, you just have to have identified it's yours. Well, those are two different ways of thinking about it. And in our experiment, two people could have, I think it should be a fast fish, loose fish, and the other people could say, it's iron holds the whale. <laughs> how do we decide who gets, what's the right rule? Uh, and it it played out, we had an exact kind of conversation that played out. Um, two, one person said, oh, you saw I had that one. And then the other person said, well, it got away, so it's mine. Right, right. And so they they that's part of the human problem is figuring out what are the rules such that we are on the same page, have the same expectations, for when I can say this thing is mine.
0: In other words, it seemed that everyone understood, as we were saying earlier, mine what the the tougher yes. part was all the rules after that about, okay, how do we uh, mitigate the effects of everyone having everything is mine and yes. sort of creating the that's not yours thing, right? So back to that, maybe they should have all watched the seven minute uh, kids episode there first. <laughs>
2: yeah
0: <laughs> People will notice that they're listening here that our sort of spectrum of conversation has gone from the very conceptual to now we're talking about how these rules come about and what the rules actually are and and, wh- and how a lot of them uh, become more effective. And, and one of the things you say here, um, and it's a subheading name in your book, where you say property emerges to protect us from real and positive hurt. Um, so it seems like, you know, whether that's like a hurt in the strict, like economic, like cost sense, or actually like maybe in some other type of society an actual being physically hurt sense, that this is clear, again, this idea of, Trying to mitigate the effects of anyone thinking everything is theirs, they have a right to do anything. That's where like the more tangible as, uh, aspects of property come into play, right? That's that's the things that culture cultures seem to uniquely develop is where the lines are and how to enforce that. But everybody understands, of course, the beginning, the mine part.
1: Yes, and, and that was that was the common part of like how did people get out of this? Everyone claiming everything. Attacking each other, they 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 had to come. They appealed to each other and saying, "Look, you're hurting. We're hurting each other. Mm -hmm. Can we find a way to get out of this?" And and then when say you know um, five of them have come out, figured this out, and then there's that sixth person who's not figured this out. They we the five other people go to the sixth person and say, "Look, we have a great system here. (laughs) Don't." do this you're you're hurting us and most of the time people then empathize with it they see what there's what that this harm in this and so they'll they'll change their uh their behavior accordingly such that they're not going to do this and they then they have to decide well what is that rule that is not considered hurting hurting each other and and so that's that's the tough part, but we get there by realizing that if everyone's taking things from each other, this is a very miserable place. And you have, you know, the conversations from the experiments, people are really upset if somebody doesn't kind of uh, recognize that. And, and they didn't have to be morally upset. Uh, they didn't have to be morally upset about what's going on in this experiment. It could be just a game for just some money, but right. no, they, they are upset and they are indignant about this. And uh, I don't think this was, it. this was recorded in the book, but there was a session where um, I think it was only a four-person group and, and everyone was taking things with each other. And then there's this one person who would not talk to anyone else in the room. And when the experiment was over, generally the people are paid by themselves they leave the room and they go on their lives. It's meant to be anonymous. Well, they st- beyond the doors, but I could still hear them, they were congregating saying, Who was person number four? <laughs> and, person, and person number four says, I was. Well, you ruined it for everyone. <laughs> I didn't know that. Uh, how did I do that? It, so it, they, had, they hadn't gotten through to convince this person that this was, that we could all do better if we were respecting what's mine and what's yours and so it has to be it has to be taught Right. What those
0: rules are now shifting over into like more of the sort of solid rules and things like that around property. So, um, in in your book, and I found this very interesting too. You sort of traced a bit of the the way, and you teased this at the beginning of our episode together, where uh, the language we use around property has changed over time. And one of the ones that you spend a good chunk of time on in the book is uh, this idea where um, whether you have property in something or you have ownership of something or like your property of something. And perhaps you can elaborate a bit on that distinction, like, you know, how how this has changed through time and, and why this is actually something we should stop and note.
1: So when I was confronted with these experiments where people were taking things from each other, and, and it was, you know, kind of depressing actually, uh, wanted to read some, I started reading some f- philosophical background to see, well, can this be helpful? And so, um, first read david hume that might not be most people's go-to but i could been reading adam smith so it seemed seemed more adjacent to what i had been reading but then started reading Locke as well and uh, kind of tie this in where we began i noticed that they didn't use the word property rights they would always just talked about property and you start reading sir william blackstone and other scholars in the 17 and 1800s uh, They use this phrase, have property in. And there's a very famous case uh, called the case of the swans from the late uh, 1500s. Uh, Sir Edward Cook uh, argued this case on behalf of the queen. And in his decision, he uses this phrase, have property in eight times. And it sounds quaint to us. Um, We we know what it means. Um, but it struck me different than the phrase we have property rights too that there's a different preposition that's being being used in in the older text than when in the modern way we talk about these things and um, and that is that, in, that intrigued me and i'm kind of i'm on the school of where our language reflects and reveals how we think about what's going on in the world, that we, we choose these words because it seems to be the best way to communicate what's in my head to go, go to your head. Mm-hmm. So why would you use this phrase, have property in? Um, and, and so I read some c- cognitive linguistics about English prepositions. Like why, what, what's going on here of how our minds work with prepositions? And um, so I read a book by uh, Tyler and Evans on the semantics of English prepositions. And they argue that all prepositions have a a relationship between two physical things and a functional relationship that that works between those two things. And so take a phrase. This is their example, and it's a great example. He ran to the hills versus he ran for the hills. They don't mean the same thing. All you've done is changed his little word two to the little word "for." That's because the word two always is pointing and it's about where you're going that's important. So when you run to the hills, it's the fact that the hills is where you wanna go. Whereas you ran for the hills, it's not really about the hills that's blowing. You're interested in why you're getting to the hills, because something's going on in the town. There are guns ablazing. The bank robber is heading for the hills, and so four is obliquely referencing where you're going. It's more about the intentions about what's going on. So in, and if you listen for it, and now I can't not hear in is used all over the place. In is uh, has many different meanings, but the canonical one, and I'll take my tea cup here, um, is is a functional relationship between two things tea and the cup and the function and the functional relationship is containment so there's this three dimensional thing and the tea is contained in the cup and what i mean by that is where i cup goes so goes the tea now you, you could imagine if i had a, a bowl of fruit and a pile of pears in it and then I, and if they just went up to the kind of top level of it you move the bowl around you would say the pairs are in the bowl but if i keep piling on them and i move the bowl they're gonna fall off those are not in the bowl right <laughs> they are on top of the bowl so so our minds will will call in this based upon um kind of these three dimensional features of, of the physical world we we put that in there and we say there's some there's a functional relationship between them so if you say She has property in the swan. There's a functional relationship that's going on there, namely that the property is in the swan. And so it's contained in the swan. You might say, well, that's just being metaphorical, right? Well, it's true. We use the word in metaphorically as well. It's not just the tea is in the cup. We say the cow is in the pasture. Pasture is planar. That's not like a cup, it's not three dimensional but the cow doesn't get out of the pasture, right? (laughs) The cow, the cow is in it. It's contained by the pasture. So, so it's, so our minds have kind of relaxed that and we go even further and we can relax and say, the cow is in heat. Now that's much more abstract, but the idea is that the cow can't escape the estrus cycle. It's there for 15 hours. It's going to be so, if we can do that for planar pastures and estrous cycles, we can also then apply it to how is working. And that's what I argue these early scholars did. They say, the reason why they say they have property in the cow or property in the swan is that where the cow goes, right. so goes my property. It's contained in the cow. And it goes with our natural intuitions. If I have a cow and I have property in the cow and a cow gives birth to a calf, I also have property in the calf because the calf was in the cow too. Right. (laughs) And now it's not. And so our minds, and this is what I argue is universal. Our minds will universally take properties being contained in the thing. It extends to the border of the thing itself and no further. And so um, that language I think is, is important because it gets us in the habit of thinking about well, how is it that somebody could claim to have property in the, in the swan or property in the, in the cup, as opposed to saying the cup is my property or the cow is my property. That's just cow, connector word, copula, my property. <laughs> it doesn't tell us how I got to that, but if you put, if you think about property as a custom and you say, "Then I have property in the custom, and if you say I have property in the the cow, then we're saying, well, what are the, how can you do that? What are the rules of the community by which you could say something like that? And so the words give us this habit of thinking about how it works because it helps and it reminds us that this is how it how it works so when we start moving it to two now if we have property right to the thing mm-hmm. the difference is now the, the property right whatever that abstract thing is it's pointing towards the thing it's outside of it well how is it moving towards the thing <laughs> who gets to say it moves towards the thing does it even go in the thing <laughs> does it go right on right on by Whereas if I say I have property in the hammer, I'm literally holding the thing. And it's inside the hammer. And so there's this physicality that's built into our language that I argue is how we think about how it works.
0: And I definitely I definitely saw that as I was reading the book too. Like that that made a lot of sense once I read through it. And again, it's sort of counterintuitive to the way a lot of our language is set up today, but you're totally right. Like when I think of like you having the property in the thing, it's sort of like I have like you know this concept is in that thing it's not as if as you said there's a property i have owner i have ownership of it or to it that that kind of thing and i thought that was very interesting I think you do have a section head in the book that basically just makes the claim look the language of possession the language of rights the language of two like it sort of all like dresses up property but ultimately doesn't change the fundamental reality that if we really want to be accurate about it that's the way our brains work right so we have property in the cow in the pen in the phone whatever we're talking about and then i found that very interesting and section two does this uh, very well i think and of course as i was saying at the beginning here we definitely can't can't just talk about section 2 for 3 hours although i would very much love to our program doesn't do that but but ultimately um c- can you at, at least at a high level sort of trace that change and, and and pick out a couple of points for us to keep in mind as to, you know, where exactly in the literature you sort of see the language changing and what kind of new problems came with it, right? Because as you said, I think you had a sentence in there somewhere that said, this is a fairly new conception, the way we think of like, you know, we have a right to that, and that's our property and property rights and the, the other privileges that come with that. So I guess we have a whole other set of problems that kind of obscure the meaning of what we've been talking about today, don't we?
1: Well, so the language of rights, rights, a right is always to something. Sometimes, very rarely, you will hear you'll hear the phrase right in the property right in the thing. It's it, it, every now and then you'll see it in a few places, but it's not the predominant the way it's the, the way the words go together. It's property right to. And what it doesn't then bring to your mind is how is it that we're going to decide who gets to say the right to the thing? And that's a major problem of having large groups of people living together and being governed by one common system. And inevitably there's gonna be conflicts about that. And I think what that language brings out is we're gonna to have to decide these things and we're gonna, sometimes we're gonna to have to decide these things from, from the top down uh, about what the rights are going to be to use these things to um, possess these things to whatever right you're going to u- apply to the thing. But if we only think about it as handing them out to each other, we overlook that there might be some customary way of people on the ground of how they think and feel about how it works.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that's what I think gets obscured by the language of rights, that we no longer are thinking about how ordinary people in their communities are thinking about how this works and they, and and so we've lost kind of what's the customary way on the ground that people are thinking about this problem.
2: Right. And
1: I, so I, I think that's gotta be as important as the top down way. We're going to ultimately have to decide if there's a dispute about what what the rights are to using things or possessing things, but we don't, think about it that way. And I have a chapter on these court cases where people find things. We come up with many different rules to settle kind of who gets something when they find it. And um, I think this way of thinking about it on the ground would help us solve these problems of deciding who gets a found item.
0: I think, yeah, I completely agree with that. It's one thing for like you know you and I and maybe a couple other people to get together in a room and start whiteboarding. All right, our fantasy society. These are the rules. Don't these work? But uh, but if we're not taking into consideration at all, as you said, like these common universal notions that people have of the thing we're talking about, we're always fighting that uphill battle and we're going against the water flow for sure on that one. I'm um, throughout the book as well. You. You do talk about either specific disciplines and the way they think of property, and you offer a couple of critiques and a couple of statements on that. And I did save this one for last before our formal wrap-up, so this will be the last note here. Um, and, and and I thought this was very interesting too, especially for those that consider themselves classical liberals, free marketeers, that sort of thing. So you 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 ba- it's basically a word of caution for me, I find. You, you make the statement that at the end of the day, if you really want to think about it properly, economics is founded on property. Uh, not property rights. Do you say, to be clear, my criticism of work by economists is not with the content of positive economic analysis. My criticism is with the jargony abuse of common words in the service of positive economic analysis. Rights by any stretch of the word are not plain ability. So, so basically, again, it's a common thread throughout much of our conversation today, but you also think that that is another discipline. But some economists sort of engage, as you said, in this, this jargony abuse of what we're really trying to communicate in this social science. Here.
1: So if you go to most textbooks how we teach economics, of somewhere around page eight or so, they'll have a little paragraph. And usually it's just a paragraph that says, of course, markets work because government enforces property rights. And then we move on and we really don't come back to talking about it unless we talk about that. Uh, uh, having problems with pollution, or coming up with um, innovations in intellectual property, and then we'll bring come back to it again. But it, it kind of gives the impression again that we're thinking about property from this macro level of the world, and then this is how economics works on the ground. And there's a disconnect there. I, I, and so the reason why most of us don't go around stealing things is not because the government is gonna throw us in jail. <laughs> That they're going to arrest us, and, and what um, we learned from our parents that we shouldn't be doing that. Now, some of us have different have different ideas of when that applies, but it isn't the government isn't the reason why I don't go out. Most people don't go out stealing. Kind of tie back the beginning, and to say that economics then is founded on those kind of property rights that the government grants takes away the agency of the individuals every single day when we go around and voluntarily give our money to somebody and get something in return and right. I don't just go around and take it. And it, it is that customary way of thinking about the world that gets all this trade and specialization off the graph.
0: It sort of makes the idea of why exchange happens a little less powerful if we think about that too literally, as you're saying, right? Yes.
1: And, and, and in fact, I think that that's why. Um, so. Matt really has a book called The Rational Optimist where he makes this claim, and it's kind of in the background of how I was, when I was working on this book, that only humans are the only animal to exchange one thing for another thing. And I think the reason for that is because no other animal has the ability to think about a future where if I have apples and I want eggs, that if I say, this is not mine, these apples, and I get these eggs that, that I can see this happening in the future because it's, and it's an abstract way of thinking about the world. All the other animals are on the here and now. Abstract thought gives us this ability to think out and think about how we could exchange across, across time. And so the reason why we're the only animal trade is we're the only animal that has mine, we're the only animal that has yours. And we're the only animal that can look at a thing and say, this is not mine, this is yours. And nothing in the physical world has changed. The thing is still the thing, I'm still me, you are still you. But me saying some words changes how you think about this word object and how I think about this object. Right. I perceive this thing differently, you perceive this thing differently. And as a result, we now have different ways of interacting with each other regarding that thing. All because, we had some vocalizations going through the air. Right. And that's what economics is founded upon, that I have this as mine, and then I can say this is not mine, this is yours, and somebody else will say that same thing back to me. Mm-hmm. And then we are better off for it. And then all the rest of economics starts kicking in with specialization, and we're, we, we get the end, the wealth creation process off the ground. But it starts with us being able to perceive the physical world differently. Try taking food out of an animal's mouth. Not going to happen. <laughs> and my, my friend Sarah Brosnan is a primatologist, has tried her darndest to get chimpanzees to trade food. <laughs> they won't do it. Right. <laughs> it's that they, and I, I think it's because they can't, they can't think abstractly about a future where these things are switched and then think, oh, I'm better off and, oh, they're better off because of
0: it yeah we don't see it as like you know this oh therefore my property rights have transferred as you said we in our almost like magic in our heads we remove our property in that thing in an exchange and move it to some place else and that's an imprint in our mind almost it's symbolic it's not as you said based on this idea of like oh because the government said therefore that happened
1: right now once we got to get all millions of people billions of people organizing ourselves of course we're going to have to come up with this notion of, of rights but that's not what basic economics is founded on. Mm-hmm. Basic economics founded on you and me doing different things and trading the stuff that we do and doing that peacefully and as opposed to trying to just take it from each other. Right. That is foundation of economics. And it's a world in which it's built on basically peace. That property gives us peace.
0: And I think that's actually an excellent place to move on to our formal wrap-up as our time has definitely wound down here. So Bart, let me say that we've talked about a lot. Uh, Let's bring it full circle. Try to put a finer point on our exploration of the question today. In each episode, I want to make sure that the guest has our last words. So let me ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on whether the idea of property is universal, if you want to leave them with like one thing to take away from this that sums it up uh, and, and either what we talked about today or how to go about thinking of this topic, which is very complex, you wrote the book on it, what would you like to leave them with?
1: one think about how ordinary people think and feel about property and how they go about their ordinary lives is as important as how the macro level of rights and the government think about how property works. And that it's an interplay between the two and that our language tends to only talk about it in this big idea of rights and not how me and my community think about it and you and your community think about it. And that there is something that unites us, that we all can think about it in one way, that if this is not mine, this is yours, we do that reciprocally, we can all be better off for it.
0: Bart Wilson, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been great fun.
0: This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.